0: Uh, So John 1, 19 to 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. No. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptise if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This will happen in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptising. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, Late one night a burglar broke into a house that he thought was empty. He tiptoed through the living room and he suddenly froze in his tracks when he heard a loud voice say, Jesus is watching you silence returned to the house so the burglar crept forward again slowly and once more the voice boomed out Jesus is watching you he stopped there in his tracks again frantically he looked all around and in a dark corner in the room he spotted a parrot in a birdcage and he said to the parrot was that you that said Jesus is watching me The parrot said, yeah. So the burglar sort of sighed with a bit of relief and said, so what's your name? And the parrot said, I'm John the Baptist. He said, the burglar said, well, that's a dumb name for a parrot. What fool named you John the Baptist? And the parrot said, the same fool who named the Rottweiler Jesus. you ever been in this situation? Walking down the street, just over there in the distance, you see somebody you know. And so you start to make signs that you've, you've seen them. You, you start to wave and you start to make a beeline over for them. You're going to go and say hello. And you're sort of halfway there and you've got their attention. They see you coming. And you look out again and you realise it's not the person you thought it was. And so now you're stuck with your hand up like this and you've got this stupid smile on your face and what do you do? How do you recover from that? Has that ever happened to you? you know, you've got to have bought the wave somehow so one successful strategy is to sort of do something with the hair or go for a scratch that you don't have but the problem with that is you've taken care of your hand but now you've got this half stupid smile on your face and the person's left thinking that you walk around the streets with stupidly smiling at strangers. So, fair dingham case, of mistaking identity, it happens. And it can be quite embarrassing when it does. Um, And afterwards you might even think it's funny uh, when you're relaying the story to somebody. So you might have some of the funny experiences yourself along those lines. Um, Good stories to share over a cup of coffee in about half an hour's time, I would say. Good for a laugh. But unfortunately, um, there are times when the mistaken identity goes far beyond just mere embarrassment. It can become very serious. There are stories, um, some well-known stories, of individuals who have been pursued by the police because somebody's fingered them out as being responsible for some crime or other and being pursued by the police. Them, the person not understanding why they're being pursued, but running anyway um and then stories some of those stories where the people have ended up in the slammer in prison uh, mistaken identity and then the last couple of years i can remember stories on the on the the news where um sort of in gang situations where a gang member has been beaten up by members from another gang and it's turned out that they beat up the wrong person mistaken identity and I've even heard stories in the last couple of years where somebody's been killed and it was an oops, that was the wrong person. What do you do when they're dead? <clears throat> so mistaken identity you know, can have tragic consequences, very serious consequences. So today we're looking at a passage where John the Baptist has been mistaken for Jesus. And I'm hoping that we'll leave here today appreciating that this wasn't just a slightly embarrassing case of mistaken identity. But it was a really important blunder with serious consequences. So you might want to have your Bibles open at John chapter one if you want to follow along. And we're just going to be looking at the two two days in the, in the life of John the Baptist, as they're described in verses nineteen to thirty four. The standout event that's described in this passage is in verse twenty nine. Right here in this voice, in this verse, John publicly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and then he points out to anybody within earshot that he's the Lamb of God and saviour of the world. That's the first time that's ever been said about Jesus. Have a think about it. It's a really really profound statement. There is the Lamb of God, and he's going to save the world. Just let that sink in for a minute. So, we're going to dive into the passage shortly and look at some of the details surrounding this event. But let's also recognise this was the inauguration of Jesus into his public ministry. Now, an inauguration is a big event normally for somebody who's important. Now, I can't think of anybody in the history of the world more important than Jesus. So let's have a look at what sort of inauguration he got into public ministry. He's the King and Lord of everything. He is it. There was no celebrations, no parties in the streets, there was no media coverage. Compare that to uh, Barack Obama a year or two ago, when he was inaugurated, when he entered public life. Massive, massive expenditure, massive, massive media con- uh, coverage. I wasn't around at the time. No, I wasn't around at the time when the queen was coronated. Um, but that was a big event, a really big event when she was inaugurated. And from my understanding of ancient history, uh, which is little, <coughs> um, in, the, in the Near East, in you know two thousand years ago, three, 000, four thousand years ago the emperors, Roman emperors, the kings, Babylonian kings, Assyrian kings, the pharaohs of Egypt. When they were inaugurated, there was great public adulation. There was um, a lot of fanfare and so on. And they're all subservient to, to Christ. And is Christ standing by a river in the desert. John the Baptist is looking at him and saying look guys this is the man, this is the king he's the lord of everything there's something else we should recognise at that moment in time it's effectively the start of the new covenant between God and his people, it's the start of the new testament and the gospel the old covenant The Old Covenant at that point in time has just been replaced. Just like that. As soon as Jesus was identified correctly as the Lamb of God and the Saviour of the world, the Old Covenant ended. John's the last of the Old Old Testament prophets. He's just announced to the world that Jesus is the main man going forward. Everything's now resting on his shoulders from that point forward. John's ministry and his responsibilities effectively ended on that day. That was it. He was spent. Done. So in God's masterful plan of redemption, Jesus has now stepped into the spotlight as its centrepiece. His life and mission represent the critical central moment of all existence, of all history. Think about that. All that Old Testament history everything from creation was building up to the point where John the Baptist standing by a river, the River Jordan in the desert somewhere says that man there is Jesus Christ he's the lamb and he's going to save the world but let's not forget John did have an important role in God's plan but compared to Jesus it was quite a bit different but John was never intended to be the main game in town, he knew his purpose, his purpose was foretold in the Old Testament quite a number of prophecies pointed towards John and what he was to do and what he did but simply his point, his purpose was to make sure the people were ready for when Jesus came and to be clear who Jesus was. Because when John was doing his bit about repent and be baptised, the kingdom of God is near, he didn't know Jesus from Adam. Amongst all the people there, and there were many people flocking to John to hear what he had to say, John didn't know which of those men was Jesus. But he kept doing what he was doing. I'm hoping you start to get the idea that this passage today while it says a lot about John the Baptist, it's not about John, it's about Jesus and that Jesus is the true Messiah. The passage has got two sort of threads in it. Um, They're woven together I just want to attempt to pick them apart a bit and we'll see on one hand that John testifies why he should not be identified as the Messiah and on the other hand, why Jesus is in fact the Messiah. So in this passage, let's have a look at John's testimony about himself. So we've sort of already mentioned in a roundabout way that John's ministry, his activities, was the final stage in God's plan of redemption for the world but John himself was a phenomenon in Israel in his day. His ministry, the preaching that he was doing, and the activities he was doing, it engendered great excitement in the region, um, had a marked impact on the people that were flocking to him. Um, because they sensed, based on their knowledge of the scriptures, and the gap between the last time they'd heard anything from God, which was... 400 years or so beforehand they were starting to sense that something was happening prophetic word was again being heard in the land and they're starting to think who is this guy what's he here for but john um, could have stood there and taken a lot of adulation and you'll notice that um, john doesn't do that he does the very opposite He is very careful not to claim any significance whatsoever for his own ministry. He points rather to Christ. So John was something of a problem to the Jewish religious establishment. His ministry, his activities hadn't been sanctioned through any official channels, so to speak. Um, There was considerable anticipation in the region that Um, and in the Jewish nation amongst the Jews that the promised Messiah might soon appear. But this left the authorities with lots of questions that needed answered. Like, you know, maybe John was claiming to be the Messiah. We don't know. But maybe he is. And if he's not, where did John see himself amongst the Old Testament characters that we're so familiar with, remembering that the Jews at that time their Bible was the Old Testament. That was their scriptures. And they did a lot of teaching from those scriptures. And um, they were quite familiar with the prophecies in that, uh, in those scriptures, I should say. And then it can only help but build expectations. They've almost got a, a list of what they're expecting to happen. And John appears on the scene and says he's from God. And so now that's really got their expectations up. But they don't really, they can't really get a grip on who he is and what's really going on. They were expecting Elijah and that was talked about in a prophecy in Malachi, which was the last prophet uh, before God went silent for those 400 years. Uh, They were also considering the possibility of Moses because in Moses' farewell speech to um, the Israelites just before they moved into the promised land, God had said to Moses, tell the people that a prophet just like you is going to be raised up. And so all those years later, The Jewish people are thinking, you beauty, another Moses. Perhaps it's Elijah. They didn't know. So they sent out the sort of religious police from Jerusalem. Got an interrogation squad together. Go and find John. Go and find out what's going on. We'll pick it up at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. When the news of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess but confessed freely i am not the christ then they asked him then who are you are you elijah he said i am not are you the prophet he answered no notice how emphatic john's responses are i'm not the christ i am not elijah and i'm not the prophet And also notice the answers get shorter and shorter. His third answer is no, getting pretty terse. I think if I was confronted by a um, a police interrogation squad from headquarters in Jerusalem, I'd probably be getting a bit impatient too. But we can see as we move on to the next part of the passage that probably the religious police, as I'm calling them, the Levites and priests, they're probably a bit mystified at this stage, so no, nope, we haven't got a Christ, we haven't got an Elijah, at least he says he's not, and we don't have the prophet. But I can imagine they're feeling some pressure from their masters in Jerusalem. Geez, we better find out something, we've got to go back and report back. What are we going to tell them? So the questions that follow, that little dialogue seem perfectly understandable in the circumstances to me. You know, and the two key questions are then, well, all right, if you're not those guys, then who are you? And by the way, why are you baptising? Why the heck are you doing that? There's nowhere in the scriptures that speaks of a prophet plunging people into water. And what's more, now that we think about it, why are you baptising Jews? We're citizens of good standing and we're circumcised already anyway. So what's all this baptism stuff about? What's this water stuff about? In reply, John simply refers to himself as the voice of the one calling in the desert. Now, the words he's using there, he's actually quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, which was a prophecy that he's now fulfilled in Isaiah about somebody coming to prepare the way for the Lord. As to the baptisms, John doesn't directly answer the question, but he basically says, you don't know him yet, but he is here, and he is much greater than anybody else. So Jesus is on the scene. Um, John knows that, but he can't at that point in time on this particular day finger Jesus out and say that's him. As I think about that dialogue between the religious police and John, seems to me John's load, loaded his answers with some, well, hand grenades. Little packages that John's sending back buried in his answers that were intended to blow up in the face of the leaders back at religious headquarters in, in Jerusalem. Because in a nutshell, John's saying to him. The relationship between the Jews and God, between you and God, is completely broken down. It's trashed. And because of this, you need a saviour. And to this end, John's job was to pave the way for this saviour, and that saviour would be arriving soon. Or putting it another way, John said to the Jews, look, even though you're physically here in the promised land, for all intents and purposes, you're actually in exile, spiritually. What's more, you're dirty, rotten, unrepentant sinners and need to be cleansed as the act of baptism sort of signifies. Can can, can you imagine how galling this would have been to hear if you were a Jew? Because after all, the Jews felt they were already saved and God's people already. And furthermore, they could prove it because they were descendants of Abraham and if anybody cared to look, they could also show them they were circumcised. So if anyone had to do anything to be saved, they needed to convert to Judaism. That's what, how the Jews would have been thinking. We're right, mate. We're in good shape. <clears throat> We're God's people. We're saved. So you people over there, you Gentiles, if you want to be saved, you come and join us. You have to convert to Judaism. And if you're going to do that, that means you've got to be circumcised. And that's precisely the sort of activity that went on. And anybody that did that, any Gentile that uh, converted to Judaism uh, was circumcised and they were called proselytes. But in short, the message from John to the Jews was was that it was they that needed to do something. Their relationship with God was broken. They weren't saved like they thought they were. They were deluding themselves. They needed to repent and show that they, uh, sorry, that they meant they needed to repent and they needed to show that they meant it by being baptized. And only then would they be on the straight and narrow on their way back into the promised land spiritually. Well, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in Jerusalem. When that delegation came back with the answers to those questions and and, and the messages that I think John had embedded in, in the answers. I reckon the religious leaders there would have blown their stack. And I also reckon that it was the initial spark that ignited the hostility they showed toward Jesus during his ministry. Could well be that the antagonism and the difficulties that they threw at Jesus stem from that dialogue that John the Baptist had with that delegation from Jerusalem in the the months and years beforehand. Anyway, from the the other gospel accounts, we know that many Jews did repent and get baptised. And I suspect most of them would have realised they were backing the wrong horse with respect to John being the Messiah. They'd made a mistake when they looked at John being the identity of the Messiah. But despite coming to, fa- coming to grips with the fact that John wasn't the Messiah, and I say that because if you were there, and John the Baptist is there, and it's clear that John has come from God, and he points at a man and says, I can tell you with 100% certainty that that's Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God, and he's here to save the world. I'd probably want to listen and respond to that. So many of them did. But we also know that eventually the Jews arranged to get Jesus out of the picture by arranging and organizing behind the scenes for him to be crucified. So they didn't accept him as as the Messiah. Sadly. Because they've refused to accept the evidence that was there and probably being motivated by other agenda items, they're still waiting for the Messiah to appear, even to this day. Let's see what else John had to say about Jesus. John has been saying to the Jews... This man Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Saviour of the world He is the true Messiah He is the person that was foretold in the Old Testament Or or the scriptures as they would have referred to them Heap of prophecies about who the Messiah would be And what he would do John's fingered him out and said, that's him But what does Messiah mean? Let's dive back into the passage and have a look Messiah comes out of a Hebrew word um, and it literally means anointed one. The Greek equivalent of that Hebrew word is Christos, where we get Christ from. So Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, one and the same thing. But the act of anointing, anointing was something that happened with oil. And the act of anointing somebody was the sort of designated means of appointing people to special tasks in the Old Testament period. And it could be as a ruler, as a king, or a priest, etc. Um, and, and anointing, the oil, was the mark that this person had been picked out, singled out to do whatever the task would be. Um, the kings didn't have a coronation and get a crown, they were anointed with oil. And that's what Messiah means. Anyway, so the Jews were expecting a Messiah. Some of them have come to the point of saying, okay, we agree, Jesus is the Messiah. And some of them have said, no, he's not. And as we know, three years later, they had him hanging on a cross. But what were the Jews expecting the Messiah was going to do? Remember, they've got what we've got. They've got the Old Testament, they've got the scriptures, and there would have been vast amounts of opportunity, I believe, over the years for discussions to be having about what the scriptures say. Some of them would have heard over the years the prophets speaking directly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we get to the first century AD. And it seems like the expectations of who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do were all over the shop. The uh, expectations varied, I guess, over time. People's interpretations of what the scriptures said changed or, or one person believed, said this and taught that and somebody believed this and taught that. Or people heard the story and through Chinese whispers or the equivalent, the story got distorted. So by the time we get to this scene here, the Messiah has just arrived, come on the scene, the expectations of the people who are uh, being prepared to receive him are all over the shop. For example, some thought the Messiah would just bring peace. Remember that the Jews are in Israel or in the promised land and so are the Romans and the Romans are giving them grief. Um, So Some of the Jews were just hoping the Messiah was going to bring him peace. Some thought that the Messiah would come along and sort of stress righteousness, if you like. But due to the Roman um, occupation, some of the Jews would have been thinking, you beauty, the Messiah's going to come and oust them. And uh, that'll be good. And what's more, you'll be such a great king and ruler. um, We'll have worldwide prominence, prominence for the entire Jewish nation, will be it, will sort of be the new Babylon of uh, the first century. Some of them thought he would be a supernatural visitor, you know, from God, from heaven. And others thought that he would be a human prince from the line of David. I guess nobody thought he could be all those things. Now, how did John know that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, it came at his baptism. Let's have a look at verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. There's um, prophecy in the Old Testament that says that was exactly what would happen. That is how you will know that a particular person is indeed the Messiah, a dove will come down and rest on him, that dove being the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the dove will go away. So, John is baptising... Sorry, Jesus is being baptised, because I don't know that John did the baptism. And in the other Gospel accounts, we read that Jesus was baptised and at that time a dove came down and rested on him John saw that John immediately made the connection to the prophecies in the Old Testament where it said that's what you should expect's going to happen John's standing there it happened so now John 100% certain it's happened that's the Messiah fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy the title of Messiah points to th- three things that we should consider it points to the authority of Jesus the title that should confront us because with it he's claiming reign over our lives as King and Lord and it's calling for our wholehearted submission to him the title of Messiah is also pointing to the enabling by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the one who's energised Jesus and provided the supernatural resources he needs to carry out his ministry while he's on earth. And lastly or thirdly the title of Messiah is fulfillment of many of the prophecies in the Old Testament as as I've been talking about. So not only does it give credibility to the divine authority of the Old Testament writings, but it proclaims his lordship of, of God over human history. So I've mentioned quite a number of times the Lamb of God and in verse 29 Jesus has recognised that Jesus is the Messiah. He's announced him as the Lamb of God. He's arrived and he's going to save the world. He's going to take away the sins of the world. Well the concept of Lamb and sins would have got a lot of ears pricked up. Uh, would have got the attention of the people thereabouts who heard what John had just announced because the Jews understood from the laws in Leviticus that when someone sinned a lamb had to be sacrificed because God just couldn't ignore the sin it had to be atoned for so now John said here's a lamb the lamb of God and he's here to save the world so by designating Jesus the lamb of God John's indicating how things are going to end Implicitly, and why he's saying Jesus is going to die a sacrificial death. Well, that's what happened to the lambs. Somebody sinned, they got a lamb, went to the temple, slaughtered it, made atonement for their sins. John's saying, Well, Jesus is the lamb, and he's going to die. His life is going to be sacrificed for the sins of. You, 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 you and you, no, the whole world. It's a monumental assertion. What a big paradigm shift that is. John's announcing the end of the temple to the Jews. He's announcing the end of priesthood. And he's announcing the end of animal sacrifice. What he's announcing is that the lamb, Jesus, is replacing and superseding the entire apparatus that stood at the heart of the Jewish religion for centuries. I just want to get back to this concept of world in verse 29. Taking away the sin of the world. That's Jesus' function. To free the world from sin. And what does that mean? Because we're talking about the Jews here. What John's saying to them by saying that Jesus has come, the Messiah has come to deal with the sins of the world is that God's rescue operation is moving out. It's wider now than just Israel, the Jews. It's going to embrace the Gentiles as well, everybody, the world. And it also means that every kind of sin and evil is covered. There's going to be no sin that's too heinous or too wicked or too terrible that it can't be taken away by Jesus. It's a very, very profound declaration announcement that John's just made John's also testifying to Jesus as being the Messiah because he's the one the Holy Spirit descended on at his baptism Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit as opposed to oil and there's a complementary truth to that because I said before that the dove came down the Holy Spirit came down and rested on Jesus And it didn't go away So that means Jesus has the Holy Spirit, if you like Which means He can therefore dispense it So he dispenses that same spirit to his people Now baptism is an initiation type experience You know, it's sort of a one-off event So in the case where John was baptising with water He was initiating people into readiness For the coming of the Messiah In the New Testament church Baptisms initiating people into the family of God For us to say that Jesus is baptising with the spirit Means he's the one through whom we are initiated into God's kingdom And that happens when we're born again Now in verse 34 John also says that Jesus is the son of God So he's designated him as the lamb of God And the Son of God And the reason he can say that with the confidence that he is Because he says I have seen The Son of God And I testify that this is the Son of God He's very confident in saying it And he can be confident because he personally witnessed the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus As the Old Testament told him that was what was going to happen So when Jesus was baptised And the dove came down you can look that up for yourselves Um, it's in the other three gospels Um, for example luke chapter 3 is a is a good one but i want to point out something else that happened at jesus's baptism when the dove came down and it was clear that this indeed was the son of god John heard a voice coming from heaven and you'll find this in verse 22 of chapter 3 in Luke. A voice coming from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So clearly that's God saying, declaring you are my son, I I love you and I'm really pleased. And that's not the only occasion that happened. On the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was there talking to Elijah and Moses about um, uh, his death, or his impending death. The disciples went up the mount with Jesus and they went up there with serious doubts about whether Jesus was the Messiah. Quite amazing to think that's the state they're in. But they were. In Matthew 17, you can read the story there. And... um, On the way down the mount jesus said uh, that john the baptist by the way he was definitely the elijah that was talked about in the old testament the apostles witnessed i'm sorry the disciples witnessed the transfiguration there could be no doubt in their mind that now that this wasn't the messiah but they john the apostle john heard a voice coming out of the cloud at verse 5 of chapter 17 in matthew And it said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. God spoke at his baptism and he spoke at the the Transfiguration. You know there's a movement called the Mandaeans. They're based in Iraq and Iran and they trace their roots back to the original disciples of John the Baptist. Ten days ago I didn't know this but I'd like to share it with you. They're a relatively small group, um, tight-knit group and quite a secretive community. Um, It turns out they were very heavily persecuted under Saddam Hussein in Iraq during that regime and a lot of them left Iraq and resettled in other countries. And I understand that now there's a small community of these Mandaeans living in Sydney. And I'm guessing they came here as as refugees. But so what? Um, who are the Mandans? The significance of the Mandans is that they did. Remember, their origins go back to the disciples of John the Baptist. They did, and they still do maintain to this very day that John the Baptist is the Messiah, not Jesus. And they follow and they worship John the Baptist. And we know what happened to John the Baptist, don't we? They maintain that Jesus was a false Messiah who perverted the their teachings that John the Baptist gave him. Wait, it gets crazier. They also believe Abraham and Moses were false prophets, but they do believe that Adam and Noah were legitimate and prophetic uh, characters. It's a bit convoluted and confusing, and I don't understand it. Um, or understand them, I should say. Um, So I really can't give you any more information. But what I can do is give you a source to get more information. Apparently Scott and Cassie had the uh, pleasure of meeting one of them in Inverell and uh, have talked to them. So if you're looking for something to talk about over coffee, you can go and pump them for information about uh, the Mandeans while you also exchange funny stories about your embarrassing situations on the street. Anyway, I can't imagine any of us being like the Mandanes. We wouldn't embrace John the Baptist. So in fact, any of the apostles, the person we would worship, with all the first-hand eyewitness testimony and evidence that was around at the time, I wonder how anybody could mistake the identity of the Messiah, but clearly it happened. I guess you had to be there. Um, You know, John the Baptist explicitly denied that he was the Messiah despite the fact a lot of people were thinking it possibly is him. And not only was he denying, but he was pointing to Jesus and saying, look, it's not me, it's just not me. I'm a just a voice, I'm a nobody. It's that man in there, it's Jesus. He's the Messiah. Um, now, the Mandaeans come from the disciples of John the Baptist. So right at that point when John the Baptist was saying, I'm not the Messiah, it's him, somewhere along the line, they haven't accepted that. Anyway, I couldn't help but feel that if you ended up following and worshipping John the Baptist, somehow it feels like you got second prize knowing that Jesus exists. It's like um, buying tickets to a football grand final and leaving after the reserve reserve game finishes, or going to the theatre and going home at intermission and not knowing how the story Finishes. I wouldn't be telling you anything new if I said there are some absolutely wonderful preachers and Christian sort of book writers out there at the moment. I'm sure we've all got our favourites. And given half a chance, I'd probably wax lyrical about a couple of my favourites. But that's uh, another topic for coffee discussion. Anyway, these preachers and writers, for their part, are simply going about their business. And what's their business? They're using words to point people to God, either orally or in the written form. And some of them are really, really good at it. Let's face it, they are really good. If I don't stop myself, I'll start waxing lyrical about one or two. John the Baptist and the Apostles were really good too. But there's a trap. There's a trap for all of us we need to be alert to. We can so admire these people, these people that write really good Christian books, and that speak so well, preach so well, that we put them up on pedestals and end up following, worshipping and idolising them instead of the person they're pointing at. We just need to be mindful and alert to that situation arising. We need to keep our focus on God rather than the people that are witnessing about him. You know, most of us aren't high-quality public Bible speakers or top-shelf book writers, but we still have a job to do in terms of witnessing. But we need to also remain mindful and alert as to how we live our lives because of our witness. Our witness is our pointer to Christ. What we say and what we do is what people see and hear. That's what they know of us. And it needs to reflect their gaze at us to Christ through what we say and what we do. So in everything we do, we need to be pointing to Christ. People should see Christ in us. So I'll leave you with this question. Think about it as you leave. Think about it during the week. Remind yourselves of it during the week as you're going about your business Does your life demonstrate that you really believe Jesus is the Messiah? Would people look at you and say, hmm, there's a follower of Jesus? Let's pray. Dear Father, grant us the ability to be more like John the Baptist, living obediently and godly lives, proclaiming to people that the Saviour is coming, and urging them to repent of their sins, knowing that a day of judgment is coming. Help and use us to be good witnesses, to point people to Jesus, so that they too would come to know your grace and mercy, to know that they may have eternal life in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.